You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello everybody and welcome to the Royal Blue Podcast. My name is Joe Thomas, I'm the Echoes Everton FC correspondent. I'm joined today by my colleague Christopher Beasley and long-term contributor Gavin Buckland. Now, I'm here having just, we're recording this on Friday afternoon, I've just come back from Finch Farm for Frank Lampard's press conference. You might hear some exasperation in Chris and Gavin's voices. That's because I've kept them delayed because I've been, I've been late. And one of the reasons that I was late is because I was coming out of Finch Farm I was stuck because there were two players who were leaving together and they were stopping and signing autographs, taking photos for everybody. Now, they were in separate cars, but Chris, Gavin, if I had to ask you to guess what two players in that Everton squad do you think would most likely be leaving at exactly the same time together and also be excellent ambassadors for the club, who would your money be on? Uh, Amadou Anana and Alex Awobi? No, go on. Gav? Cody and Tarkovsky. Exactly. Yeah, Chris, I don't know where you're going with that. What are you doing? The Everton dads together. There they were in their cars, blocking the exit of Speech Farm because all they wanted to do was talk to their fans. I thought it was brilliant. I'm late, but I thought it was brilliant. It's nice to see. So uh, <laughs> that's a, a feel-good anecdote to start the podcast today. The, the big question is, Joe, did anybody ask you for your autograph and picture? That is the... Uh... That is the question, isn't it, really? Nobody, nobody asked me, you know, in, in four months of driving in and out of Finch Farm, the closest I've got is transfer deadline day, when I think some people perhaps excited by the possibility of late transfer window business got a little bit ahead of themselves. And somebody looked at me coming and suggested that, oh, look, it's one of the youth team players. Now, you know, for those of you who are listening to this as opposed to watching it, you know, I, I can guarantee you that I... I took that as a very, very big compliment, but I think they were under the influence of transfer speculation at the time because I think it was more the fact that they didn't recognise me than, than my youthful good looks, to be perfectly honest. Tough I, know good. I know we're going off on a tangent in the podcast, I didn't necessarily need to down here, but I remember 20 years ago when David Weir was coming, uh, linked with going to Man United, coming out to Goodison late, and somebody came up to Wimstow and thought it was... David's way, you know, thinking about this. <laughs> yeah. was going, don't go to Man United, Davey. Don't go to Man United, you know. <laughs> you know. I don't know. Yeah. Bevy's in the wind, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Well, we'll get down to business. I'm sorry for that slow start, but I hope you all found it interesting. Chris, you've been following that press conference just like uh, as uh, myself. I mean, what did you think? What were your main takeaways from that? Yeah, it was interesting. I thought that the line that um, Frank Lampard is now picking from the strongest Everton squad he's had at his disposal since he came to the club. Um, he's, he's almost got a full um, set of um, fit players here. And obviously, if Ben Godfrey won't be back until after the, the World Cup break. And not too sure at any point where Yeri Mina is up to, but he is. He is training, he is back on the ball, so whether he will be in contention 
tomorrow. So yeah, it's interesting that you know he has does have those options on the bench now. It's been a, a reoccurring theme since he came to the club. You know, we, it was almost at times that the first eleven would pick itself. And to to be fair, that it is a pretty settled side at the moment. But what he does have now is he does have those genuine options off the bench. You're not looking at the bench and thinking, oh, there's nobody there, there's nobody you can turn to. There are genuine alternatives um, chomping at the bit. And the, as he mentioned, um, it's a new issue for him and one that he relishes having to give um, minutes to players who, who want to be on the more. Yeah, Mina, Mina unlikely to be in contention for tomorrow, but there's a chance that he will be um, in and around the squad for the Bournemouth game, the first of the Bournemouth doubleheader in the League Cup. That's, that's when he, there's a chance if he comes back, that's likely to be around then. If not, that might be in the squad for the last Bournemouth League game. But obviously, you know, he's, I don't think anybody's expecting him to be up to match fitness or anything like that until we get the other side of Christmas and, and, and then and into those games. So, so yeah, get a... Obviously, we've got a, another treat in show for tomorrow. It's Goodison Park under the lights again. That's not going to be too many more occasions when that's the case. And I, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. Obviously, we've got the second half of, of this season to come. And we've got all the next season to come as well. But, you know, it really is probably, for anybody that's going tomorrow, anybody that ends up going to a, a, a game under the lights at Goodison Park, probably like, like, over the next 18 months or so, it's really going to be something to savour, isn't it? I mean, you know, are you looking forward to going to tomorrow? And do you think you'll take that extra hesitation as you come out of the, you come out the concourses, take a step out and look? Are you, are you appreciating it even more every time you're there at the minute? Unless somebody mistakes me for David's weird again, probably <laughs> not. Um, but I had this exact same conversation with somebody after the Palace game about trying to work out how many three o'clock kickoffs we've had because the atmosphere in the Palace game was good and, the, you know, Form is excellent, and you know how many three o'clock kickoffs of a Saturday, which is the traditional time for the game of footy. You mm-hmm. know that, that that to me, in some respects, is the important one because most games of Goodison in 130 years, whatever it is, have kicked off at three o'clock, haven't they, of a Saturday afternoon? Um, yeah, I, I don't set aside the fact I'm not a fan of the five thirty Saturday games. Um, the yeah, I think. By extension, the, the three o'clocks and the, the ones under lights, it's any game of goods, isn't it, Joe? Mm. How many have we got left now? Let's, let's hope for a good few cup runs and stuff, but it's not many, is it? You know, I don't know how many games we played the goods, and it'd be, I would imagine it would be two and a half thousand, 2,800 2, off the top of my head. You know, we've got possibly, what, 35 left, 30 left. Mm. Very small proportion, isn't it? Left, and if you think of it in that, yeah, that 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 manner, you know. So you're not going, you're not going in tomorrow thinking of anything different than normal. You're just going to treat it as a normal occasion. Obviously, I know that it's not a million. I know we're still going to have more under the lights, but you're not there treasuring every last minute you get there. I'd say I'd say it every game between now and the the next season. I think like everybody else, (laughs) but at the same time, having an eye on the future, you can't just close it off can you you know you've got it's like living in your first house isn't it moving into your second house good memories your first house but you've still got a life left to uh live and that that's why works with football clubs isn't it really absolutely chris you got a glimpse of the future when you went around there yesterday didn't you do you want to tell us a little bit about what it looks like obviously we can all see you know whether you're on the other side of the mersey looking over or whether you're going on the mersey rail or, or driving past the docks i mean the stadium looks fantastic from the outside what's it look like from the inside yeah, the, the big thing I took away 
from yesterday. And I was fortunate, you know, I've, I've seen it up close once before, but it's the first time I've been on the site, actually inside the stadium. Is it is probably a lot further along than most of even us realised. Um, it, it's not just the skeletons of a stand now. You can you can see it the whole way round. It's a stadium. I climbed to the top of the south um, stand. I mean, it was a lot more difficult than it will be once it, it's open because they've not put the little steps in yet. So it was all these huge big slabs. I was lucky to have the long legs that I had, so I was able to sort of leap up there one at a time and. Uh, have that view back across the city, looking back, and then um, obviously the, the scale of the place. Amadou Anana was was with us, of course. Um, got a couple of interviews coming up with, with him, and he he looked impressed. He was uh, he was engrossed in conversation with the experts, the stadium people who were showing us around. Genuine interest. He wasn't just paying lip service to him. He was very engaged in what was going on. He even actually said at one point, "You can almost hear the fans now. You can hear them there." Um, uh, like I say, great views across um, the Mersey. You can see there and then obviously back across um, to Goodison Park as, as well. But yeah, the thing I took away was just how much progress has taken place. And and, and, and I'm really excited about it. Like Gav, it, it, it's, I mean, it is bittersweet. A lot of people were saying to me yesterday, as much as they're so excited about that, they're not quite ready to say Goodbye to Goodison, and I suppose it is always going to be um, a, a sort of a, a case of that. It's certainly for myself, it's the place where I watched my first game of football. It's the place where I've watched the vast majority of matches in my life, both professionally and, go, and going as a child. But for, for me, I, I think psychologically, maybe I might be a bit different when the day comes, but I, I am very much ready for this move, and it, it's long overdue for me. Um, I'm just so relieved from Everton's point of view that it is where it is now, that magnificent sight on the waterfront, considering what Everton could have had. They could have had something else on the waterfront, which would have been good in the shape of King's Dock 20 years ago, but wouldn't have quite been like this. It wouldn't have been that sort of unique football structure that this is. It would have perhaps been a bit of a lower spec Emirates. And, you know, it would have been good, but then, I mean, it could have been Kirby, couldn't it? And I think that would have been disastrous for Everton. And then there's been all other sort of things that have been proposed before or since. So I think hopefully, you know, the best things come for those who wait with for Everton. And it can only be an exciting thing going forward to have this um, magnificent new stadium to move to. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Absolutely, definitely an exciting thing and, and obviously one, one for the, the midterm future. In terms of the immediate future, Leicester at home tomorrow. Gav, opportunity, I mean, it's the first time back at Goodison since the, the emphatic win over Crystal Palace. Yeah. Uh, opportunity to have back-to-back home wins, you know, if, if, if they can get it right. Uh, how are you looking forward to, to tomorrow? I mean, and what are you looking most forward to? I mean, this is the last Goodison game before Christmas. And, um, you know, is it the performance that you're after? Is it the result? Is it both? Um, 
I think this goes. You mentioned this the other week when we played at Tottenham. That it was the the performance. That was sorry. It was the you know the the, the performance at Tottenham is important. Not necessarily the points. I think tomorrow. I think at this mm. run of games. I think Frank alluded to it. It's it's the points probably, isn't it? I think so. That these four did this like little mini season of four games. It's all about points, not performances. And before the four, I was thinking, you know, I'd take six, seven points, I think, would be a decent return. You've already got four. So what I'm looking for is a, a, a at least a point. I'm not really bothered how they play mm. at this stage in these next two games. Because Frank, you know, it's like Frank says, you want something to take into the World Cup, I think. Break. Um, so I'm looking forward to the same as last two games on that basis. You know, a bit of flair, you know, the flair and um, teamwork we showed against Palace combined with the, the, the resilience that we showed uh, certainly at the back against against Fulham. That's mm. what I'm looking forward to. I'm also looking forward to a good game. I think Leicester are a decent team, aren't they? Uh, they've run into a little bit of form. They've got some high-quality individuals, as we know. And uh, I'm a bit like the Fulham game last week, which was easy on the eye, wasn't it, for, for 60 minutes? I'm, I'm looking forward to a good game of football with Everton getting it's, the result at the end of it. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because of all the games against Leicester of this year, this is the least important. Obviously, we had the, we had the, we had the home game where there was Richarlison's last-minute equaliser, which was kind of crucial to maintaining the momentum after the Chelsea win. Then obviously there was the away game where Mikalenko scored and, and Holgate got the second. Obviously, we all remember those amazing scenes at the in the away end that the everyone finally got an away win, and again it just started to make survival look like it might happen, didn't it? Didn't it? So I mean, in that context, this pales in significance, but it is still an important game. I think I think you're right, Gav, because obviously we know the bottom end of that table is so bunched up, and let's be honest, all of us. All of us want to go into this World Cup break sleeping easily. No, no one wants to be on the you know teetering on the edge of the of the bottom three. It feels like there's always three or four clubs or managers in crisis in the Premier League at any one point at the moment. I don't think we want anybody to be. You know, we don't want Everton to be going into into this World Cup break with you know questions, more questions than answers. And a win tomorrow would be a, a huge help in that. Chris, if you've got any concerns that of all the times we've played Leicester during this first half of the season, this might be the worst. Um, they have picked. They have picked up. I was. Um, I was speaking to our, our opposite number, uh, the Leicester Mercury, a piece we've got going out um, later tonight about Leicester City because it's been interesting. Um, for a long time, they've been heralded as being the sort of club that Everton should um, look to aspire to in terms of um, challenging um, the so-called big six. I mean, they are the big six in terms of finances. And the way they've gone about things in recent years, obviously um, they had their shock Premier League title win and then the FA Cup in, in 2021. And then they've had a couple of back-to-back fifth-place finishes in recent years and just generally sort of outperformed at Everton. But come this season, um, the wheels have fallen off um, quite a bit. Um, as we say, if you're into the, they've been in the relegation zone since the end of August. And then um, I think they actually went on a free game and beaten run before their last game with Manchester City. So they have picked up. But the feeling I was getting that that um, quite a lot of the fans have, have um, run out of patience with with Brendan Rodgers. Um, he's he's actually been um, making a lot of noises about the um, the um, the lack of spending. They obviously they only signed one player in the summer, and that was for a replacement for Farner, who they had to sell to Chelsea. So while he's perhaps had a genuine cause for for. for 
for concern over uh, the, the lack of spending. They still feel that there's um, more than enough quality within the squad to be doing much better than what they are. As we mentioned, actually quite a few positions below, is it six positions below Everton in the table, but only three points. I think the big contrast actually between these two sides is um, the amount of goals they've scored and conceded. I've just jotted this down before. Everton have scored 11, conceded 12. Leicester City has scored 21, but conceded 25. <laughs> So they're actually chalk and cheese in terms of um, their attacking and defensive output, which makes it quite an intriguing game, really. Are we going to get a, a low scorer or a high sc- scorer? But um, yeah, it all was not well at um, Leicester City. They feel that this is a real... Uh, I mean, we talked about the importance for Everton of these last two fixtures before the break, and obviously both clubs have got a Carabao Cup fixture in between that as well. But um, Leicester got two away games, Goodison tomorrow, and then uh, West Ham United before they finish. And they're seen as a crucial couple of games, sort of gauging where they're at. Because, you know, like you said, nobody wants to be going into that six-week break sort of looking over their shoulders because there's nothing you can do about it until Boxing Day. So, yeah, I mean, depending on what happens at Goodison tomorrow and what happens at West Ham, I mean, could that absolutely make or break it for for Brendan Rodgers going forward, perhaps? It's a really interesting one, isn't it, when you look at the bottom end of that table. and, And I think probably, you know, I mean, whisper it quietly, um, just be the subject of some some mixed opinions, I should imagine, both on this pod and and among lis- listeners. But to a certain extent, obviously Liverpool haven't done Everton any favours in the past uh, in the past fortnight. Obviously losing at home to Leeds and losing against Nottingham Forest just to help strengthen some of those clubs that you know were just in danger of getting cut adrift a little bit. And I think that's probably one of the concerns for pretty much everybody outside of that that top bracket, really. That nobody's getting cut adrift yet. Even, you know, you look at likes of Bournemouth and Southampton and you look at and at the yeah. start of the season and, and now still feel that, that, that Everton are, are stronger than, I think, over the course of the, the full season. You know, I, I, I think Everton will, will, you know, finish above them comfortably. But there's no room for any complacency, is there, Gav? And, and, and I mean, this goes back to what you were saying just a couple of minutes ago. But, you know, these games against Leicester, these games against Bournemouth, you know, they... They are important. It's not, you know, two more games in the Premier League and then you can put your feet up or anything like that, is it? Like, they need to treat this week really, really seriously. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think it was mentioned in the press conference last they're only three points behind us, are they? Mm-hmm. Um, it, was interesting. it was an interesting stat, isn't it, that going on Chris's point, and maybe this is a take into account when we do our predictions, is that we've been, our games have had the fewest Premier League goals this season, haven't they? It's yeah. 25. And Leicester's have had the second highest. There's only Man City have had more goals in their matches. Not because City score <laughs> and every week, you know. But yeah, you are you are right, uh, Joe. It, 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 it this in, in some respects, this mini league of four games can shape the entire campaign. And the 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 the, the, the glass half full way looking at it. Okay, there's a, there's a bit of a log jam behind us, but there's also a bit of a log jam. In front of us as well, isn't it? And a couple of decent results in the next two games, and we could be, you know, more top half than bottom half of the table. Mm. So, and I, I suppose that at the same time, you know, a defeat, you know, a defeat's not necessarily the end of the world because, as you say, there's lots of clubs in and around us. But I think there's an opportunity here over the next two games. You know, because Leicester are beatable. I think Bournemouth are beatable. You know, if we get four or six points the next two games, we could be 
looking at a slightly different, you know, table and sort of view of, of the post-World Cup part of the season. So, it, 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 it's, yeah, massively important games, I think, in the context of the of the campaign for us. That's it. I think the narratives are going to be, you know, the, the narratives that come to a conclusion at the end over the course of this next week will will shape what's going to happen then for the next six to eight weeks. Well, probably for the next 10 weeks, if you then include the January transfer window, won't they? Because obviously, if you have a bad run or if you have a good run, particularly if you have a bad run, there's nothing you can do about it. If you lose the next two in the league and you end you end this little run on a little bit of a sour note, as I say, it's, it's not until what Wolves on the 26th that you can put anything right if you're Everton and, and similar for all those other clubs. So it really is really is going to be quite fascinating but hopefully obviously Everton can come out of these you know these next few games on the positive end it's one of those obviously we look below in the table but when I think of what the way that Brentford have started I think oh Brentford had a great start remember they're thumping win over Manchester United and and, and some of the other really good results they've had and then you look at the table they're only a point ahead of Everton you think well like you know that that's just how congested it is so if they were to get a win tomorrow then that really would be um a significant one. Frank was kind of asked about this in, in his press conference. So I think the reporter who asked it kind of got his, his position muddled up a little bit. But Chris, one of the interesting things I think going into tomorrow is obviously one of Leicester's most obvious weaknesses so far over Brendan Rogers's recent, ten- over the probably over the course of this year, as opposed to just a season, is defending set pieces. Now we know Everton have made absolute Phenomenal strides in how they can defend set pieces, but in terms of in terms of the threat that Everton carry from set pieces themselves, we haven't really seen too much of that this season, have we? Obviously, Ashley Cole is leading the the, the set piece coaching forward and, and offensively. Off the top of my head, the only goal I can think of from the set pieces season so far is Connor Cody's at Southampton and Anana knocked mm-hmm. the ball down to him. Yeah. I mean, do you do you think that might be an effective way to target Leicester t- tomorrow? Are you, are you hopeful that the size of Cabinet of Calvert Lewin, the size of Onana, you know, the strength of the likes of Cody and Tarkovsky tomorrow might be a game where Everton can kind of really look to you know to take it to the next level when they come to set pieces? Yeah, those players you mentioned, Joe. Um definitely. Um, you know, as you say, Leicester City have struggled in that department and whereas Everton, as you say, have made Great strides and trying to tighten up. They would be nice. I mean, something Michael Ball often mentions in his, his columns with the Echo, you know, they, especially with Everton games being so tight as they tend to be this season, set pieces can make all the difference. And we saw it in um, in Frank Lampard's first uh, Premier League home game in, in charge. It was a wonderful um, um, set piece routine that ended up, was it, with Michael Keane um, heading it in. And obviously, Michael's not been playing regularly this this season, but as you mentioned, there are plenty of other candidates in there, and a few of them waiting to score their first um, goal for the club. Amadou Anana, wouldn't it be great if he could um, get off the mark before the World Cup, or even like as you say, James Tarkovsky? I mean, he's got to be a big threat from a, a corner kick or um, free kick coming from the, the wide areas. Um, so yeah, it has to be something that that they're looking at, particularly if it's another um, close game. You know, it could it, it could make all the difference because as we said. Ironically, it's in inverted commas the least important of the Leicester City fixtures this season. We've just explained why it is actually very important because of this congested league table to sort of keep your noses in front and get a few points 
um, before the, the the World Cup break because we're as Everton as sort of in a nice enough position, relatively speaking, at the moment. You, you know, you don't want to be sort of slipping up over this la- this last week and then sort of having no nothing you can do about it until until Boxing Day. No, no, I, 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 absolutely not. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now I'm just going to move away from the lesser game briefly to discuss something else that's kind of come up in, in, in the last few days. And one thing that's probably been of interest to a lot of Everton fans has been the words of another former Everton manager kind of seemingly to... I don't know, gloss over the time that he had at Everton. I don't know if that's fair. Gav, did you see what Sam Allardyce was saying about his time at Everton earlier in this week? I've heard about it, hasn't he got a podcast at the moment going? He's got a No Tippy Tappy podcast going at the moment. And I think it's fair to say that Goodison Park, there wasn't much Tippy Tappy football under his tenure, which which I know wasn't a surprise necessarily, but... um, but yeah, we had Sam Allardyce saying the talking about the the pride that he took in the job that he did at Everton, um, and also talking about the the fact that he was a victim of politics in terms of in terms of his departure, which again was probably quite interesting. Um, Chris, I don't know. I mean, have, have you seen him, or have you seen what I found interesting? Was one of the guests on the mm-hmm. show, of course, was Everton legend Duncan Ferguson. And perhaps this is perhaps a, maybe a bit more of a surprise. I don't know. You can tell me, Chris. But he was also speaking very glowingly of Sam Allardyce's tenure. Yeah. Um, I, I think obviously Duncan worked worked under Sam, so we, and he's on his show, so he's not going to be not going to be bad mouthing him, is he? Is he? And um, he's not. He's, but let me let me just let me just find these quotes, and and I'll just. Uh, uh, I'll just see what we can. So Sam did a great job, really, to get the club in a good position. He was really unfortunate to lose his job, and he shouldn't have lost. He shouldn't have lost his job. Yeah. I've been a big backer of Sam for some time, and we've always got on well. What I loved about Sam was that he was straight. He's a straight fella, a straight talker, and tactically very good. He knew his game plan and communicated that with the players, and we went and executed it. He knew exactly what he wanted. He communicated that with the players. The players liked him as well. They loved him. I think that's an important part of being a manager. There was no BS with him, and that's what I liked. He was straight, and the players liked that as well because they performed, didn't they? What are you thinking, Chris? Yeah, if you've got to be devil's advocate, you need to say that you know Sam Allardyce finished um, eighth at Everton, and you know after what's happened in the, in the recent season, and look at. Um, on the, on the Carlo Ancelotti, I mean, it sounds absolutely bizarre, really. We're talking about this in the office this week. If, if um, Carlo Ancelotti has subsequently proven himself to be anything but a busted flush, the fact that he defeated Liverpool in the Champions League last season and won La Liga with Real Madrid. Um, so, he, you know, he's not like Rafael Benitez. He's not yesterday's man. Um, he's still very much at the cutting edge of the top end of 
football. But what he did at Everton, if he'd been anybody else other than Carlo Ancelotti, he'd have been under serious scrutiny for the way that last season finished. Second going into the turn of the year, they finished 10th. Because of them subsequent mess under Benitez, he's subsequently been able to sort of paint a different pictures. They all have been doing these former Everton managers at the time at the club said it was a miracle that they finished 10th. Well, I would say the reality is that, you know, the, um, Europe was the aim that season and they, they missed out. And if he was anyone other than Carlo Ancelotti with Carlo Ancelotti's track record, then he's, ironically, despite the fact that he got poached by Real Madrid, he'd have actually been under some serious scrutiny. Whereas, I think the problem with, with Allardyce was, as we all saw at the time, the football was just so attritional. And despite what he says, Fireman Sam coming in to, um, to, to save the club from a relegation battle, they weren't actually in a relegation battle under the fact that they finished his first week in charge in the top half of the table and whenever it was, end of November going into... I the think table. they were 13th, weren't they? They were 13th when he actually took the, the reins because of the job that David Onsworth did as caretaker. Yeah. So, there was a big opportunity there for Sam. I'm not one of these Sam haters, like as, as, as Duncan Ferguson said, um, um, a very straight guy. Um but this was a big opportunity for Sam Allardyce to maybe re- um, sort of release the, the shackles, play a bit more expansive football because they weren't in that, that. It wasn't like Frank Lampard last season just having to be pragmatic. He could he could have played a bit more football. This was the biggest opportunity of of his career. Okay, he was at Newcastle earlier on. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole about respect to size as a club, but as far as I'm concerned, this was the biggest opportunity of his of his club managerial career and um it was a chance for him to play to show that he's not just about this uh, okay not tippy tappy football or whatever he, he's he's calling his podcast but you know it's something a bit more easier on on the eye and i think that's where it fell down for sam allardyce the fact that he didn't do that they were still playing that very rigid attritional style despite grinding out the results and it was actually a big opportunity lost because he played with a bit more um panache then maybe it wouldn't have been that um, sort of cut and dry decision that, that, that he was going at, um, at the end of the season. So yeah, they've all, like we say, they, they've all sort of tried to rewrite history. These these many managers that Farhad Mashiri has, has gone through in, in, in recent years, and um, Sam Aldice was probably never the right fit for Everton. Mashiri panicked because he got rid of Cumin, he didn't know <laughs> who to bring in, so he typically went back to his. Big book of European football from 2007 and picked out Sam Allardyce. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you recall Allardyce's tenure, Gav? Um, I think what I remember saying at the time on this very podcast, uh, what Chris has just said, that I saw it was a, an opportunity for Allardyce to sort of refine his reputation and show that his team could play good football, you know, with a, with a, a biggish club, with more resources than maybe that in the past, notwithstanding his, his tenure at Newcastle. But even when we were safe in the new year, there was no sign of that whatsoever, uh, that Sam had, had other strings to his bow. I think the problem with the politics with Sam and the appointment, there's a couple of things there, wasn't it? I mean, in, in some respects, it was a more divisive appointment than Benitez. And, and I think that actually... With Benitez, I think it was that sort of period at the start where it got results and people were like, we could live with this. But with Allardyce, it was not that at all at the start, was it? There was there was always there was always that I wouldn't say snobbishness about it, but there is there is a little bit of snobbish, snobbishness with Sam. And um 
I think the the, the problem with the politics with appointments is, of course, because of the 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 sort of pursuit of silver went a bit wrong. We initially offered the contract at the end of the season, I believe, but then because of the the, the silver position, we ended up having to offer Sam two years or eighteen months, whatever. But we'd only ever we only ever going to be here to the end of the season, wasn't he? On that on that basis, so I think that came into it. And then, as Chris said, eighth, eighth position. The thing is, that's all you're going to get with Sam, isn't it? At the time, two years into the machinery, Rain, we probably look, you know, although we'd be probably look mistaken now, we were hoping for somebody who could take us to higher than eight, really. And that's why, as Chris said, like Ancelotti was brought in, um, you know, that's all you're going to get with Sam. It's like football in eighth position or seventh position, and that's it. Um, it and the ironically, I was, I was thinking about talking to me about this this morning. I've just finished reading Rory Smith's book about uh, uh, the, the rise of data in football. And the ironical thing is, when you and this was just well known, in Sam was 20 years of, of everybody else when it came to using data in football. Um, talk about analyzing set pieces. You know, he'd work that system, what you do, and in swinging corners, now swinging corners, and if you clear a ball, where an out-swinging corner defensively, once you've cleared it, where it's likely to land in the pitch, so you make sure you have a player in that area of the pitch. And likewise, for in-swinging corners, and all this thing about, like, how many games and you've got to win and, you know, goals conceded and all this to stay up. And 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 they well into sports medicine, so he's twenty years ahead of his time with that, and what I've always struggled to 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 to, to bring together with Allardyce is that forward-thinking, progressive methodology off the pitch, which you know, as Mourinho think has said, was it? Did he say it was medieval? Mourinho described as playing medieval football once. I think was 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 you know, and drawing those two things. You know, together they don't appear to match, do they? If it was if you're playing football like Guardiola, you'd say, Yeah, I get get the whole thing, I get the whole philosophy, the whole concept. But with Sam, they were just two completely different things. Progressive off the pitch, miles ahead of everybody else, mm. but playing mid 1980s football on it. And um that was his problem, really. And uh, yeah, and he had the reputation that actually did nothing at Goodison to change. And, and okay, we were struggling, but we weren't, we weren't you know, we, mm. we weren't like major threats of going down, but we weren't cut adrift. But he had an opportunity there, and as Chris said, and I totally agree, he, well, he, he blew it, didn't he? Really, for once of a better phrase. My headline coming out of this, Gav, is Gav Buckland, Sam Allardyce is the real Billy Bean. That's, that's, that's the one. <laughs> Of English football, yeah, yeah. Or well, the other headline is, you know, Rory Smith owes me some royalties for the size of the book on a podcast. I think it's 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 a true thing, you know. If you read the detail of what Sam was about off the pitch yeah. in like the mid nineties, you can't reconcile that with Allardyce on the pitch at Goodison twenty years later. The two things are just completely cut as if from one another. And um, I find that strange, really, um, for, for Allardyce, you know, from, from, from my perspective. 
Chris, another thing that Duncan Ferguson was speaking about on that podcast was the the missed opportunity as such to, to sign Erling Haaland as a young 16, 17-year-old boy. Chief, that's when he was at, at, um, at Bryn. So obviously, you know, even before he went to, to Mulder in, in Norway. Chris, do you think now's the time to shout from the rooftops to everybody that uh, all Everton fans, and why the football community might come to this story fresh every now and then, but everybody at Everton knows that Haaland came here for a, for a trial looking to have a look and Everton didn't take the uh, the option. We all know that, don't we? Like, we it's not a headline anymore, is it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those you can say, oh, it's, you know, what, what could have been and um, uh, it could have worked out all so differently for him. I think, but rather than just accuse Everton's academy coaches of being totally incompetent or of missing this this great talent. You know, players, are, not everybody at 16 years of age is like Wayne Rooney ready to turn it up in the Premier League. And we know Haaland is this incredible specimen now, but, you know, he might have been very raw. I mean, that was one of the things um, when we talked to Amadou Anana yesterday, we've got that coming up. He was actually let go from his club in Belgium at the age of 16. And that's why he went over to Hoffenheim and um, forged a career in, in Germany. So you think of him, he's a, you know, a big, tall, strong player, similar to Haaland in that, you know, he's a big physical specimen and has got that physicality, but was told at 16 that he wasn't even good enough for his club back in in Belgium. So, yeah, I mean, what might it be? I mean, it's, the sad thing is, if he, if he had a sign for Everton now, he'd probably have left Everton now. So, <laughs> um, I, I don't know, maybe, you know, we could have ended that trophy drought. Erling Haaland could have been the hero to sort that out. But, you know, unfortunately, the reality of football is that if he had signed for Everton, they He'd probably still have gone to City by now, anyway. Absolutely, absolutely. Can I can I just add on to that, Joe? I think oh. every great player who's ever played the game has been rejected at some point. Yeah, I can name, yeah. Loads of players yeah. who've, who've been rejected. You you know you youth team level for you know Alan Ball was too small at Wolves, and you know Kenny Zaglish was rejected by Liverpool City Six. Kenny Zaglish actually played for Liverpool's youth team. In 1966, it took 11 years in a British record transfer fee mm. for them to come back to Anfield. So there's, there's, I could think of loads yeah. of players who've been on trial at Everton. I mean, Jags was here, wasn't he, for a bit as a youth player? Yeah. You know, and I think it was late, left, was late yeah. here as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, they both left, I think. Yeah, you know, so there's no, there's no crime in rejecting somebody at youth level. And he later turns on to, to you know, turns out to be a great player. It's it, there's a there's a multitude of reasons why why that happens. And um, you know, I wouldn't hold any again anything against any club who reject a player who then turns out five or mm -hmm. six years later to be to be, you know, a, a top class football. It's it's just part of football's bits tapestry, isn't it? And makes for good uh, Good anecdotes when you're writing books, by the way. <laughs> well, which, stuff like that over the years about such and such being really. played at Everton and the, the never, which uh, never which played. team rejected you, Gavin? At what stage in your career was it? Uh, I'm still getting rejected, Joe. <laughs> to be honest with you. Don't worry. About it. No, but it, it, it was Falkirk, wasn't it, when they signed Davy Ware instead? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was it was having Lionel Messi, you know, but no, it did a serious thing. You know, people think oh Everton and, and then use it as you know another stick to beat the academy with and all this yeah, and yeah. you know, but it just happens. Even even the best academy coaches turn down players later 
turn, you know, turn into wheel beaters. It's just part of football, and it, it was going on 50, 60 years ago when it was, you know, it'll be going on 50, 60 years time. To be honest with you, the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. That's it. I mean, Chris, you mentioned you were, you were talking to Amadou and Nana there, and obviously we won't go into the content too heavily because that's for, for Peter's little come out over the next few hours and in the next few days. But what was it like? What was he like in general? What was it like speaking to him? It sounds like he was really impressed with, with, with the Everton Stadium and how that's coming along. And everything, all the counts so far, it sounds like he's really grounded and you know, really enthusiastic to succeed at Everton. Yeah, I mean, Gav spoke about this before. He's such an engaging individual, which is such a, a, a sort of special young man, um, uh, you know, obviously that's different to his football, but you know that's his that's his character. I mean, Gav said you know he could be Everton captain in, in waiting, yeah. and I certainly wouldn't go go against that. Um, he's very intelligent, articulate young man, in, in engaging in everything that he does. Seems very genuine. Baldo speaks five languages, learning a sixth at the moment. Incredible, really. I mean, and he's, he's, he doesn't just get by in English; he's absolutely fluent. And uh, what's what's the sixth language that he's learning? Spanish. Wow. Yeah. So. Well, hopefully, hopefully that's not an indication of where his um, yeah, ambitions lie in January. I wonder about that, but uh, no. To be fair, that's in Chris's piece, that Joe. <laughs> no, you just broke an embargo there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, he, he was. Uh, he, 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 yeah, he speaks. He speaks. Um, now we, we have to, you have to read the piece to find out what they were five. I'm not going to list them all. Um, but um, yeah, uh, yeah, he, yeah. I was really, I was really impressed by him. And um, it's interesting, I mean, you can, you can sort of have those, um, there are natural comparisons that you could draw with both Marwan Fellaini and Romelu Lukaku, two other Belgian internationals who, who came to Everton um, quite early in their careers. And he's different than, than, than both of those two. I mean, um, Lukaku was also a polyglot, very intelligent young man, but he'd never sort of, as it, that was the infamous thing about him with Everton. He never had that warmth that Anana is showing already for Everton. I'm not going to say, you know, we've laughed about him learning Spanish there, and we're not going to say, you know, he's going to stay at Everton forever or be that naive to say that. And I think that was part of the reason why they paid so much to bring him in, because he is a player, you know, who's going to have the cynical heads on who in a few years could command an even greater sell-on fee. But um, he's, he, he does, he really, he really seems at home at Everton. And he's really enjoying himself. And he's got that bond with the supporters. Like that was the one thing that Lukaku. I mean, there was a certain coldness, wasn't it? Despite all those goals that he scored for the club, and obviously where everyone was cheering when he scored there, it was almost like whenever he was going away in international football with Belgium, he was talking about that potential next move or where he saw himself in a few years' time or whatever. Banana seems genuinely made up to be here, and he seems to be in, loving every minute of it. And um, I, I, I just hope that he, he, like I said, maybe he could get a goal before that that World Cup break and um, send him on his way to the World Cup. Hopefully, with that and with with get off the mark because you think if you can get one forever, and he, he might be able to get a few more. 
That's it, because he is, of course, one of one of the players that is probably going to be heading over to Qatar, isn't he? I think he's recently broken into the the, the senior Belgian squad, and you mentioned captaincy there for Everton in the future. He did captain Belgium on the 21s as well, didn't he? So obviously that speaks for backs up everything that you're saying there about his, his personality, of course. Hopefully he can take some form into the World Cup that starts tomorrow with the goal, as you say, Chris. Right, we'll wrap it up here, I think, lads. But traditionally, as ever before the game, we'll go for our uh, we'll go for our forecast. Chris, what's your what's your prediction for tomorrow? Yeah, like I said, crazy, isn't it? Everton so low scoring, Leicester so high scoring. Who knows? I'll go Everton two, Leicester one. Gav, what what are we saying? Uh, well, can I say a few things. I'd just like to congratulate you for using the word polyglot. You're on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm raising the bar, Gav. I, I don't know what it means. It sounds like something to see me wind this with, you know. Um, <laughs> I can't believe you don't know. That means somebody who speaks several languages. Oh, is it? All right, okay, sorry. Um, yeah, it just worked out, by the way. There's only 1% of the games ever to be played that go to some other left. Wow. Oh, yeah. God, wow, that's... 90, over 99% of the games that have played in Goodison's history have been played. Wow. So less than 1%, so it says you're the, uh, the last 1%, by the way, including tomorrow. Interesting thing about tomorrow, we spoke about Leicester, only defensively, only conceded two in the last six games, haven't they? Have they? Yeah, yeah. Four clean sheets, and one of them was against City, so I'm not sure whether, you know, perhaps... They've, they've sealed, you know, gone back about sealing windows. They've sealed the defence. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I think I'm going for a low score and one. This, as an added value start, this is the highest percentage. This is the fix with the highest percentage of draws, isn't it? In Premier League, a few over years, haven't they? Yeah. yeah, fifteen out of thirty-two. Wow, really? Is, is that a high percentage of Man United Chelsea? Because I'm sure they keep saying that on some of the adverts. That's not the most. Most number of draws. Ours has got better. Ours and Leicester's the highest ratio of draws. Ah. Um, so I'm, I'm going go oh, to go. A fair play, Gav. That was, that was an immediate retort. That was quite fantastic. Yeah, I was panicking there for a the minute there. <laughs> you might yeah, not know yeah. what Paulie got knows, but he knows. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, no, seriously, after all that, I, I think I think lots of good stuff going on at the moment with us on the pitch, isn't it? We've kept clean sheets in our last two games as well. I think it's a couple of years since we kept today, so I'm going for it. I'm going for a two 0 Evan victory. We've got a little bit of little bit of momentum. I know we've got some good players and individual talent, but I think um, we, we're looking tight and we're looking good over the last few games. And uh, I fully expect us to continue with that tomorrow. Yeah, I I, I largely agree. I'm 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 going with Gav. I am two 0 to Everton is is my wow. scoreline for for tomorrow as well. I'm, Goodison under the lights, home crowd, confidence, bit of form, yeah, bit of luck, deserve a little bit of luck after some of the recent, uh, last few weeks, some of the decisions that have gone against him and that as well. So hopefully that'll, that'll be the case, get three points, lays the foundation for what should be a far more pleasant World Cup than would be if they didn't. And obviously makes next week a lot easier when Everton fans and myself and Chris will be making the double trip down to, to Bournemouth twice 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 in four days so if anybody who's listening to this has got any recommendations for the playlist me and Chris are going to be travelling oh. <laughs> we're going to be doing a lot spending a lot of time in the car and a lot of time on the rail next week so uh, by all means give us a shout but thanks so much for joining us it's been the Royal Blue Podcast thanks very much hope you have a cracking weekend and up the toffees
You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.